Welcome to the Vaccination Station. My name is Dave, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Jody Thomas. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Let's start by getting to know you. Can you tell me three things about yourself that you think the audience would find interesting? Oh, gosh. That's a good one. This is truly an interesting one. Let's see. Um, that, what would be three interesting things? Um, I guess one of them, which is sort of a recent thing that I've actually just shared in any public way is that I have a chronic pain syndrome and um, that <laughs> it is not the reason I got into medical psychology and pain management, but certainly becomes a handy skill um, when dealing uh, with uh, my own stuff. Um, let's see what else would be interesting. I live in uh, Denver, Colorado and have two kids of my own. So again, this also sort of the street cred of knowing the complexity and the difficulty of dealing with, with kids and individual little personalities and the individual approaches that are needed. Um, what's another fun fact? I don't know. What would your audience find interesting about this? Um, actually, uh, in, yeah, things is that the thing that did set me on this path of what I do now is that I was in a really bad car accident when I was 17 and was in the hospital for a really long time. And that got me really interested in, uh, in the psychology of this and the, and the need for uh, psychology to enter the picture and when watching people survive really hard things. Thank you. That's, that's really great. And to be honest, in my experience, people are interested in people. So no matter what you say, I think other people will find it interesting because it's, <laughs> it's simply because it's new to them. Uh, Very but that's, good yeah. that's really nice to get some, some background and to, to get some context that leads into your, uh, your pursuit of pain management at a professional level. So where did you study and what are your qualifications? I did my undergraduate work at Stanford University and I got majored in psychology with a specialization in health and development and then went on and got my master's and PhD from the University of Connecticut in clinical psychology again emphasis in health and uh, health and particularly in kids and then I did an internship at UCLA at Children's Hospital and Neuropsychiatric Institute where I uh, worked in their pain program, postdoc at Children's Hospital Orange County, developed and ran their PEDS pain program, and then uh, ended up uh, at Stanford, back at Stanford, tends to suck you back in, and um, was full faculty there for, uh, for a very long time, and uh, developed and ran their pediatric pain rehab program. And so I've worked in children's hospitals and with various disease populations for a really long time. And then left, I'm still on adjunct faculty at Stanford, but most of my time is running the Meg Foundation. So you've touched on this slightly already, but if you could flesh it out for us, what made you become interested in psychology as a career? Well, it's, it's kind of interesting because when I went to Stanford, I didn't think I would be in psychology. I thought I would be in journalism. 
and um, that this was about a year after my own car accident where I'd been in the hospital for a really long time. And so I started volunteering at the children's hospital at Stanford, just uh, actually in the oncology ward and really realizing how much I loved being with that population with those kids, but also realizing how much, what are the things that made their life difficult day to day and how we could alter and change that. And so by my junior year, I actually worked at a place called the Hole in the Wall Gang Camp, which was a camp that was started by Paul Newman the movie actor for kids with chronic and terminal illness. And so I spent my summers working with these kids and realizing that I, the joke is that I wanted to make camp my career and that was gonna require going to grad school. Um, so I did, so I started working on oncology and really a lot of rare diseases and how kids and families cope. What advice would you give to someone who is considering a career in psychology? Oh, um, test drive. <laughs> and by that, I mean, I think the most, I will tell people to this day that actually working at camp was my best training that I ever had. Um, being the person that was solely responsible really for these kids 24 seven and what it was like to walk in their shoes and be in charge of their care at a level that I, mean, I couldn't understand being their parent, but being the person in that position it's absolutely the most sort of empathy building, understanding experience that I could have had. And it's sort of a, there's a romantic idea about working with some of these populations and then there's the reality of that. And so I think in any profession, but certainly in psychology is to go and volunteer and do the work and be with those populations and see, is this for me or is this not, you know, see pain psychology you know, that doesn't necessarily who you want to sit next to at the dinner party and chat about children in pain. Um, but it's certainly a passion and a love of mine. So talk to me about the Meg Foundation for Children's Pain. What is it? Uh, what does it do? What prompted you to found it? And how did it get started? And finally, why the Meg Foundation? What, what does that refer to? All good questions. I will do my best to keep this somewhat short. Um, so the Meg Foundation came about as an idea and a concept really over years of working with, um, working with kids in these populations and knowing that no matter what the population was, whether this was cancer or diabetes or whatever, that the things that were really hardest for kids and families day to day was dealing with pain. And that Western, very Western traditional medicine, honestly, isn't that fantastic at dealing with it, despite the illusions that we would all like to have. That if something hurts, we can go to the doctor, they give us a pill and it goes away. Um, and so really it came about from knowing that I had gone out and got all this specialized training and done this, but there was so many people who were not, who just didn't, didn't meet someone like myself, didn't meet a child life specialist or a psychologist or someone. And that in this day and age, the, with the advent of technology and design and our ability to interact with people on these massive levels, like a podcast, um, like these different ways that there wasn't really a great reason that people weren't empowered. And this sort of really came to a head. My daughter, uh, my youngest child, my daughter was born at uh, 33 weeks. And so it was in the NICU. And I been in the NICU a lot in my life as a professional. And it was the first time being on the other side of things. It's not really that fun. 
But I was sitting there and we know a lot about particularly babies and a lack of pain management and the damage that we have inadvertently done to kids because we used to think and really the powers that be that run hospitals right now were literally taught in med school that kids pain doesn't matter. Um, they won't remember it. And so like if I had had open heart surgery as a baby at my age and I'm 47, um, I literally would have been paralyzed but not anesthetized because it was believed that the anesthesia exactly <laughs> those of you listening cannot appreciate the face that david has right now but we used to not do that and so there's this very persistent belief that babies and pain is not a big deal when what we know is it's a very big deal and that at that time i was running the pediatric pain rehab program down the road from literally where i was with my own baby in the NICU and that I knew that a huge percentage of those kids in my program had had painful procedures in their weeks after birth that had not been well managed. And so, but again, I know that because I've spent 25 years in conferences and papers and writing chapters and doing all the things. And so when I'm sitting there with a tech, who's the lovely man with well intentions, because terrible people don't work in NICUs, okay? But I'm having, he looks at me and he comes to put a needle into my baby. And so I say, well, are you going to do a glucose pacifier? Literally a pacifier dipped in sugar water can undo a lot of terrible things that when we damage, they're not yet fully cooked neurological systems. Or can I take her out of the isolate and hold her skin to skin and put her to the breast? And he looks at me and says, oh, we don't do that here. And I was like, oh, we do now. <laughs> we do now. And so and i he looks at me and i said no we're going to do one of those two things and he says to me you know that's not convenient and i said okay all right i'm going to do a really big favor right now and i'm going to reflect back to you what you just said because first of all it's not inconvenient for me to let her take her out and hold her skin to skin it's not inconvenient to walk 10 steps and go get a glucose pacifier and if either one of those too hard i'll certainly do it myself but you also just told me that you're willing to hurt and potentially permanently damage my child for your convenience. And at which point in time he is like horrified, he's like, it's not what I meant. And I'm like, I know that's not what you meant. That's why we're still having this conversation, but that's what you said. And it's clear to me that you don't know the right protocols, that you haven't been trained in these things, that you guys don't have things set up here. And I can appreciate that that's not your fault, but I can't let what you don't know hurt my baby. And so this is what's gonna happen right now. But I'm standing in a NICU realizing that I clearly do not love my child any more than these other parents standing in that NICU love their child. But they did not have the information of that what they should be fighting for, that there was anything to be fighting for and how they would fight for it. And that really became this whole motivation for the foundation was how do we have people when and where they need it, whether they're in an you know, emergency room, waiting room, whether they're in a NICU, whether they're trying to get their child vaccinated, whether they're post-surgery somewhere, how do we get people the information that they need and the skills that they need? Because we know that that is a huge part of it. It's not just knowing it, it's how do we actually get it to happen? And we can do that now. And I'm sitting there marinating in the middle of Silicon Valley. I'm on faculty at the Stanford School of Medicine with you know all my friends were in tech of how do we combine cutting edge science with technology and design to reach people when and where they need it to give them what they need when they where they need it
So that's really how it came about. And then it's the Meg Foundation because I had a really uh, amazing friend, Meg, who was sort of that person who could really cut to the chase and cut to the bone in that way that is sometimes painful that we really need. And um, when I was moving and we moved away from the Bay Area to Denver and I suddenly sort of was reorganizing my professional life and she looked at me and says, are you going to do what you need to do? Are you going to get too busy again? Oof. And <laughs> so there's really only one answer to that. And um, it wasn't originally the Meg Foundation and Meg was actually at that time going through cancer treatment herself. And uh, we had spent a year trying to come up with a name. <laughs> um, and then it really hit me. I was actually in Kuala Lumpur of all places presenting at a pain conference. And it really, that this needed to be the Meg Foundation. So that is where our name came from, inspired from a, a very amazing woman who is really good at holding people to very high standards, which is what we need to be holding our medical world to. So, Describe for me then a, a typical day at the Meg Foundation. <laughs> what an excellent question. And I'm not sure we have a great typical day. Um, so especially during the pandemic, one of the very difficult things, I think, uh, you know, a lot of in a way, a lot of our issue is a marketing issue because um, kids, parents and providers all believe that sort of pain and the freak out, particularly around needles and procedures is sort of a necessary evil rather than something that is avoidable and manageable. Despite the fact that we have 40 plus years of research to support the fact that very simple standard interventions are incredibly effective and prevent a lot of terrible outcomes. And so a lot of what we do is about how do we reach an audience and how do we, you know, there's the motivation that no one wants to be in pain, but the challenge is how do they even know that that's a possibility, right? So the pandemic in some ways has offered us some opportunity because suddenly, you know, I would literally have potential donors say to me, like, why should I care if a kid freaks out in a doctor's office for a few minutes? And I'm like, first of all, a little bit messed up a question, but okay, <laughs> we're skipping that out. Preventing unnecessary suffering seems like a good plan, but it's really about everything that happens next. It's about that child developing a fear of doctors and a fear of healthcare. It is about parents starting to make medical decisions based on what we call the fear of that freak out rather than what's best for that fear. I said, I want, don't want fear to make those decisions. And then they become the adults that we all know. I'm guessing everyone can listening can think of that adult that they know that quote unquote doesn't do doctors. And they don't do doctors because of really preventable trauma that probably happened when they were like four to five years old. And so they become people like my own brother-in-law who dies of stage four cancer because they waited six months to get a blood test because, that, because of this long spread fear. And so it's not just about what happens that five minutes in the doctor's office. And right now we're watching this play out with vaccine uptake and that, and that, and that we know that, you know, again, the numbers are holding up that 25% of adults are, have this fear. That's 50% of teenagers, 63% of kids. And the estimates, really amazing research and really well done, um, is that we could decrease vaccine uptake uh, or decrease vaccine hesitancy by as much as 10% by addressing this. And we knew this even pre-COVID, you know, um, in the U.S., you know, only 60% of people get a, a flu vaccine. And 
one in six of the people who don't will tell you absolutely up front. And we know that shame and stigma keep a whole other population quiet. We'll tell you it's because they don't want to deal with the needle or the pain of the needle or the stress. And now we live in an era. And as we look at vaccines going forward, which have certainly not become less important, but are going to be ever more important that these issues become incredibly important. So people, and not to mention, there's also the ties to, you know, opioids use and addiction and expanding our view of pain and pain management and what that looks like and really appreciating the impact on long-term health. Oh yeah, sorry, I didn't answer your question about what a day looks like. there. My apologies. Um, so my role, so I kind of run, run the show. So what did we do is a lot of things. So we're developing technology and tech tools that interact with people. So like right now we're about to launch a teen tool that's specific for teens on empowering them and teaching them not only pain management skills, but self-advocacy skills and how you, you know, collaborate effectively with medical providers. We have one for kids and parents. We collaborate with a lot of different organizations. Our model as an organization is that we support the good work that other people are doing. So like anyone listening, our tools are freely available. We are open to things like co-branding things. We've worked with different universities for their outreach that we want to be able to leverage the trusted relationships that other organizations have with their audiences and say, look, here you go. So we do a lot of like meetings with different folks. We do a lot of media. We certainly did a ton of media, um, particularly when kids vaccines were launched. Um, so I do podcast interviews. We do a lot of outreach and marketing. We also then partner like right now we're working with some community health organizations where we're not only supporting their work, but kind of going in and figuring out and doing some research. Um, and end user research on how do we more effectively collaborate with them? How do we reach particularly populations in, of concern? So like right now we know that within sort of black and Latinx populations in the US that their vaccine uptake is low, um, that their of course access to quality healthcare is different, the racial bias in healthcare is tremendous. So how do we reach in and reach these audiences more effectively and how do we collaborate with them? So a lot of that is that type of thing. So we're creating resources. We are getting those resources out into the world and then we're testing whether or not they're doing what we intend them to do <laughs> and how we're effectively getting them in people's hands. What advice would you give to medical professionals who are keen to address vaccine hesitancy in their patients, but don't quite know where to start because they're aware that there are multiple factors involved. As, as you've mentioned, uh, fear of needles due to, due to pain is, is one of them, um, but there are so many other factors. From your perspective, from the, from the Meg Foundation perspective, what advice could you offer to them? I think the biggest piece of advice that we would have is that knowing that what they say really does matter and that having, you know, what we know from all of our even sort of design thinking and end user research is what we call those trusted conversations matter. It is easy to disparage sort of a bodiless voice that doesn't have a personal connection to you, but it's very hard to, to discount the voice of someone who's sitting in front of them and taking the time to do that. And in there, validating their perspective or their doubts, that it's not silly or stupid to have questions that the distrust that they might have deserves an answer. Um, I think the other piece that we do is that particularly on needle fear, like this is sort of the least complicated of those issues. 
when we're talking, you know, like that's the most straightforward. It becomes an issue that's not seen, but very present, that that becomes low hanging fruit <laughs> as, as of all the barriers that we have, like this one is actually sort of the more simple to address. Um, it also is an act of trust building that when we're like, hey, this could be an issue, let me offer you something. But it truly is that in that interaction and in those trusted conversations, and that can feel intimidating because you're like, how do I have a trusted conversation with all of my patients? And that is true, but it is true also that your voice means a lot and that each time in those conversations, we are planting a seed and that that grows over time. So what happens when you get the situation where it's not just about pain, but there's, there's an actual phobia, there's an irrational fear of the needle uh, that magnifies the anticipation of the pain and any other fears associated with, with vaccination or receiving a needle for, for any other reason. A fear that's irrational is not so easy to address simply by presenting facts and, and figures and pointing to objective reality because it's, it's not based on any of those things. How can you help to resolve a fear that is irrational? How can you reach beyond that psychological block? Well, it's an excellent question. And there's kind of, there's, it's multiple in its answer. So the first thing is sort of, we have a spectrum of what fear looks like and the extreme nature of a, of a true phobia. So, Phobia in itself, I think the first thing we do is to really give people a structure for understanding why what's happening is happening. So of that, yeah, it's not rational, but that makes sense that it's not rational, <laughs> that this is how it works, that that's not weird. This doesn't mean they're crazy or bizarre, but also realizing that there is a part of our brain that is going to be there that is really designed to protect us. And in that way, you're like, excellent, thank you, good job. But it gets overdone, right? It's, it's doing its job too well. And so like in kids, we talk about their worry brain and their worry brain is bossing them around. And what we need to do is figure out how I want you, actual human child person to be the one in charge. Because we'll, I'll say often like, you don't strike me as the person who likes to get bossed around. Of course, there's no child on the planet who wants to get bossed around. I'm like, great, because right now our worries and our fears are bossing us around. So we're going to figure out all sorts of different ways that we're going to boss back and giving them a structure to that. But one of the more important things when it comes to something like when we're getting like a vaccination, which part of that is going to be like, how do we overcome this? There's sort of like, how do we get rid of this fear in general? Like, how do we truly extinguish this? as a fear, which is having, and this is where you talk about exposure therapy and um, which is graduated exposure therapy is definitely sort of the gold standard for phobia. And really that's about starting at a low level. Like if it was say needle fear that we're like, can we even think about a needle and then remain calm and have that sort of that elevation of the, the fear response and then an extenuation of it. Cause we truly can't stay afraid like we can't stay in that hyper state forever. Like we're physiologically unable to do that. And then we look at pictures and then we hold a toy and then we hold a real needle and then we do all this. So that is truly how we extinguish that fear that obviously takes a while and takes a long time. And usually it takes you working with some sort of mental health professional. And so there's that piece. 
Um, and then there's that piece of how do I get myself to do this thing that I know that I want to do, but I know that this irrational thing comes and, and, and really takes over. And so part of that and the most important thing, and it's actually a basis for a lot of our tools, which is having a plan, <laughs> okay? How do I want to attack this issue? So, you know, I've had kids who are 12 years old and just by the nature of what needs to happen, they, they you know, we don't have enough time to do an entire desensitization exposure therapy. But that's when we make a plan of like, you know what, I'm gonna, you're gonna sit here with dad and dad's gonna hug you. So kids should never ever be held down for a medical procedure ever. This is a recipe for trauma and anxiety. That said, there are positions and ways and what we call comfort positioning where kids can be held and their bodies held still that is comforting and in their control and becomes a parent being able to comfort them. And actually even just the physical response of a parent's body, particularly if we can get them to be calm and centered, which is a, a challenge we know for parents because it is, it's really hard. And being a parent myself, I get that. But our physical, our own breath, our own heart rate impacts how our kids are feeling and what, what physical changes are happening in their bodies. So again, I guess I have a 12 year old boys who are like, we're going to have dad, you're going to hold their, he's, you're going to, he's going to hold you and you're going to straddle him and we're going to hold him. He's going to help because we know that the real you wants to be still and calm and get this poke done because you want to be healthy and safe. Um, and so dad's going to help your body stay still so we can keep your, your worry brain in check because your body wants to start running. Right. And that makes sense that your body wants to run. But until we can work on developing those muscles where you're fully in control of that, we're going to have dad come in and help keep you still and safe. But that is a plan that we are making with the consent of that child and that person. And that great, what are the things we need that we know that if our brain gets focused on this, but we need to pick out with distractions where distraction is such a powerful tool for people really along that spectrum, whether like we're not a fan of needles or they strike terror in our heart because our focus of attention creates a reality, right? And no parent needs to be explained that. I mean, no one needs to go into Starbucks and watch people in line staring at their phone where it's like the world could fall down around them and they wouldn't notice, doesn't understand the power of attention. Like I laugh, one of my favorite videos that was made for us is actually a friend of ours, he's a dad, he's talking about all these different coping strategies. And while he's sort of talking to the camera, he didn't notice that it was a drive-through vaccination site that the guy actually gave him the poke. And he turns around and he goes, okay, I'm ready. And the guy's like, um, it's done. <laughs> and it was this beautiful, very real world moment of like, he was so busy on trying to make this video for us. He didn't even notice it was, it was over. And our focus of attention completely changes not only our pain experience, but our, but our anxiety experience. Like when we talk about using that for kids, it's not only using that during a poke, it is doing it while we're waiting for the poke, because that's where the problem is. Like a lot of the anxiety and a lot of that fear is happens before they ever enter a medical facility. And so being able to learn skills and strategies and have a plan that they have actively participated in because choice is power. And, you know, as people with a phobia know that when that phobia hits, they feel out of control. They don't feel in control of their body or their experience. And so creating opportunities to have control over that, over their body and their experience and teaching them how to have control over their brain. I did a video intervention a few years ago. It's freely available, used in lots of different places and hospitals. 
called Be the Boss of Your Brain that really talks about how do we take control over our brain and our experience in those moments. Now, for people with full-blown, long-standing phobias, this is not going to cure you in five minutes, but we can create a situation where you can get through that and have it be what we call a mastery experience. So it becomes a positive experience that then you know fits in. It's that drop in the bucket that eventually allows us to fully overcome that fear. But one of those things is recognizing this isn't rational. We know that, but that's not weird. Okay, this is literally how our brain and bodies are designed. And that validation goes a huge way for opening up a door for, okay, so how do I boss back my worry brain? How do I boss back that part or the lizard brain or all the different phrases that we can use? That primal instinct, because it is a very primal reaction, right? You're like, your primal self <laughs> is telling you, get yourself safe. This isn't safe. So we have to create a framework around that. Thank you. That's a really comprehensive answer and, and uh, addresses pretty much every aspect of, of the issue that I, I could question. Um, there, is one, there is one scenario, however, that, that I'm particularly interested in. The, the strategies you've described so far are predicated on the assumption that communication is possible and is, is easy and is clear. But what happens when communication is impeded for whatever reason? Say, for example, you have a child on the autistic spectrum, which cannot always communicate how they feel or, or, or how or they think effectively. And they may be hypersensitive to touch or certain, certain types of touch. And what about children who are nonverbal? What kind of strategies can the Meg Foundation offer to address those scenarios? Excellent, excellent question. So if often uh, sort of given, actually recently gave a couple of presentations on this to parents of kids who are um, neuroatypical um, on the spectrum, whatever phrase that kind of one wants to use. And one of the important things is to realize that there's a lot of sort of myths and mythology around kids with autism or on the spectrum and either that they are oversensitive to pain and or undersensitive to pain and both become a dangerous assumption. And so one of those reasons is when we're talking to that parents in both these situations have to become a powerful advocate and voice for their child. And this can be hard and we know that it is a point of really difficulty. It's one of the reasons why we focus so much like super Meg is one is our, um, is our mascot for the Meg Foundation. And it's really talking about that need for advocacy and using your voice and that it's really intimidating. When we did our first design thinking and user research, what we heard from parents and that it wasn't matter if it was, we did this, these re interviews all over the world, but it didn't matter if it was like a high powered professional mom in San Francisco or a single mom of three in Winnipeg, wherever that was, we heard the same themes of the fact that they were worried about speaking up, that they were worried about making the medical provider mad and that it would compromise the care of their child. And that, that and, it, and then huge, tremendous parent guilt over, I didn't say anything, I knew it was happening to my kid was wrong, but I didn't know what to do. And so that's really the piece that we wanna do is like, we want to give you what should happen. And one of the most important things that should happen, particularly with nonverbal kids or kids on the spectrum is that that parent has to be the voice of that child because they know that child best. 
Now, particularly in autism where the reaction might not be what is expected, like that child's facial expressions might be different. So a medical provider not familiar with that child might be like, oh, this isn't that bad for them because they're not changing expression. But muscle tension, that kid's behavior, that parent is going to know much more how that child is experiencing it. So with kids on the spectrum, doing things like practicing and preparation and things like social scripts, but that play at home where we are going through what is going to happen during this. What can we do to make this okay and better? With reduction of external stimulation, this is not a great place to bring a kid where there's other kids screaming in a mass vaccination site in a you know, bright, scary place. That we are having to create a calm, safe environment where this child has practiced at home with their own toys or their stuffies that a parent is narrating that experience for them where they might not have the verbal skills to do it themselves. Because it's often because kids who are nonverbal that sometimes people assume that they're also non-auditory, that they're not understanding. And you're like, also bad assumption. So the parent role becomes very, very important in that. And that preparation at home becomes incredibly important for that. And that recognition that there are some kids for whom their neurological system is going to be incredibly overactive. And this is where that consultation with maybe this is for this medical procedure, a good thing to put something like Ativan or a medication that can calm the child might be a good plan in order to prevent that medical trauma from taking place. So there's no one answer to that question, but it really is bringing in those other things. But that need for practice and preparation just goes up and the need for the parent voice just goes up. And that knowing that I always tell parents it's really hard but to know that you can always walk away. When you go in and you know that situation isn't working for you and that that provider isn't going to create a situation that's going to be okay. Because again, it's not about that five minutes because what about that next poke that we got to do? What about that next blood test we have to do? And so we have to think about that in the long game. For smaller kids that are nonverbal or for kids who are sedated, we get this question a lot, you know, kids who are post-surgery or uh, severely injured. Again, that parent knowledge of them and what's normal and what's normal. The physical comfort and being able to use their language, which is often play. This is where uh, medical play and pretend play becomes incredibly important. Again, narrating and helping them give choice, power, and control, because even kids who are nonverbal can know, do we want it in this arm and this arm? Do we want to watch this video or this video? That every time we give a child choice, we are giving them power. Now, they might not have a choice to get that medical procedure done or that poke done, but they absolutely have choice about it. Do you want to sit on mom's lap or dad's lap? Do you want to sit this way or this way? And that our physical presence and that the more that we are, then the more our own reaction, like the number one predictor of a child's distress is the parent's distress. And so we talk, which again, makes sense. Parents are like, oh, that's terrible. I'm like, no, that means you're well-attached. Good job. Like, that is not, <laughs> like, this is a plus. We want this. But we need to take that power that our own anxiety, so centering ourselves, and that's where having a plan, we all do better when we have a plan. If we walk in and we don't know what's gonna happen, our own anxiety goes up. So that's where making that plan at home for the parent, even if the child can't fully participate that, being like, okay, we're gonna bring the stuffy, they love Peppa Pig, we're gonna watch that video, Bluey's where it's at, whatever that is, we're gonna remind them they get this reward after, that when you as a parent walk in with a plan for how you wanna cope, what you wanna ask for from that provider, 
because again, that's what we need. When parents say, well, I'm afraid of asking for what we need. You're like, look, here's the thing I can guarantee you. No one wants this to be a bad experience for your kid. And so whether or not they're aware of these as, again, the recommendations of the World Health Organization, the American Academy of Pediatrics, every major pediatric pain organization in the world and medical agrees on what should be best practice. It just doesn't happen. So it's we're like, no, what you're asking for is best practice. They just might not know. And so what we need them to know is that you guys both have the same thing. You're like, we know we both want this to be good for my child. This is what I know about how it's going to make this better for you and for me. Because providers don't want the kids to be upset and freak out. They don't. But they're going to need your help as a parent to do it. So I will move on to my final question about um, where people can follow your work um, online and if they would like to draw on the resources of the Meg Foundation, where they can find that, whether or not they'd like, you know, if they'd like to donate or whatever, how they can do that. And so if you just want to cover that, that'll be great. Yeah, so we are, for anyone, we are, again, our goal is mass access and healthcare equity. So anyone and everyone is more than welcome to all of our tools and they were available free of charge. They can find all of our stuff at megfoundationforpain.org. Um, we really encourage people to follow us on social media, um, on Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, do all the things. Um, and that's a great way to kind of keep updated. We, with one, we have a lot of tips and strategies, but when our new blog post comes out with our experts, you get that information when any new tools come out. And then we really encourage people to sign up for our newsletter. Um, which comes out periodically, usually twice a month. So it really just gives all the relevant information, including the podcasts that we've been doing, if they want to listen to some of those interviews, but also lets people know what we're up to. And of course, we're always, we are a nonprofit. We depend on the, the kindness of grants and strangers to continue to do our good work. And so we always love to people to come and donate to the cause, um, knowing that everything they do really does go directly to helping kids and families quite literally around the world. That is really wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Thomas. This has been a real pleasure and a very interesting interview because it's a subject I haven't tackled on my podcast before. And I think it's something that, although it's an issue that's very prevalent um, Mm -hmm. that families deal with all the time, it's not something you typically think about an organization being set up to address. So this is really, really terrific. Well, thank you so much. We do. I mean, that's what I laugh and people like, do other people do this? I'm like, not really. That's why we started it Um, was really, and it's been great. We have an amazing board and advisory board of experts around the world who are just eager to share their information and knowledge with, with one and all. So thank you so much for this opportunity to be able to talk to more people. Thank you again. My pleasure.